0: Welcome back to the H-Hour podcast. You can become a patron of H-Hour and get access to all of the podcasts before anybody else. This podcast was released to my patrons before you got to hear it. You can also, by becoming a patron, get access to exclusive Q&As with podcast guests and you get invites to a monthly Q&A or call, discussion, Zoom call with myself. Also, exclusive invites to events and his monthly prize gift giveaways from veteran-owned companies and brands that I give away to my patrons. You also get access to an exclusive Discord community where you can engage with other patrons and with myself in a different way. And uh, you can just become a, a part of a real quality core community of HR supporters and fans and people looking to engage with other like minded people about a bunch of different topics. To become a H Hour patron, go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts and sign up. Also, you get your name in the credits on each YouTube video for each HR podcast at the end. Yeah, become a patron of Hour, patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. On to my sponsors. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not for profit organization formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed on operations in 2008, serving with a parachute regiment in Afghanistan. Rugby for Heroes organized fundraising events to raise money for military charities, and they've been doing so since 2009 every single year. They started off doing one event a year, which was a uh, rugby festival at Old Lemontonians RFC in, uh, in beautiful Lemonton Spa. And even with just f- those few events a year, so one a year, they have managed to raise over £114,000 for charity. In recent years, with the exception of flipping 2020, the pandemic year, Rugby the Heroes have expanded their scope of events to include beer and gin festivals and supper clubs. And I highly recommend you get across, along to one of their events. They're a real, uh, real good chance for some enjoyment, some pleasure in your life, good networking, and all in the name of a good cause, fundraising for military charities. Keep up to date with Rugby Heroes by following them on social media. They're at rugby for heroes Rugby number 4 Heroes on social media. Um, but also you can go to their website, RugbyforHeroes.org. Thank you to Mike Valance at Rugby for Heroes for supporting the military community, for supporting this podcast and everything else that you do. Incredible work. Thank you. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Development Society. Do you want to surround yourself with like-minded people who enjoy fizz, who care about others and want to improve themselves on a daily basis? Because if you do, just uh, sprinkle in a healthy amount of stoicism and you've got the Development Society. The Development Society, or Devsoc for short, is a community of like-minded people who want the best for each other. From insanely cool products to weekly Zoom yoga sessions, there's tons to get involved with, with Devsoc. The best way to keep up to date with them is to sign up for their Daily Waves newsletter on their website at www.devsoc.devsoc.shop. D-E-V-S-O-C, Scroll all the way down the the website or you can look at what's on the website on the main page there's loads of information on there but for the daily waves newsletter scroll all the way down to the bottom there's a little box you put a new email and you can sign up for that new daily waves newsletter daily useful information into your inbox no spam uh they also in their shop they've got a load of different products in their shop some of the stuff right you'll see it's priced like a t-shirt for example or some other item it's priced at like 500 quid Click on that. You'll see that if you do a workout as listed, you get to earn that item at like a standard price, not five hundred quid. It's really cool. It's a really good incentive to get get some good fizz going. Uh, they got John Deere Caps in there. Also, some of the stuff on there is only available at certain times. So you might log on and think, "Oh, I'm going to get one of my uh, Dev sock John Deere Cap." It may not be available right now. You may have to wait, and you'll get the information through the Daily Waves newsletter to tell you when it is available. So once again. Sign up for that Daily Waves newsletter, devsock.shop. Finally, sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group provide advanced systems for the protection and management of territories, borders, assets, and people for a global customer base. The Aardvark solution incorporates risk management, satellite and UAV imagery for situational awareness, safe systems for the identification and destruction of landmines and the remnants of war, and standoff explosive detection technologies. Aardvark operate in the humanitarian, critical defence, security and commercial sectors in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and they are widely regarded as the most effective landmine clearing system in the world. Since their Acquisition in 2017, the new management has sought to develop and expand the company's offerings with systems and solutions that complement the company's highly regarded status. They've made many enhancements, and one of those is the addition of an advanced drone surveillance technology, providing the company with market-leading situational awareness for mine clearing, counterterrorism, border security, and asset protection operations. Aardvark also have a shop on the website, so go to aardvark.group and click on the shop, where they stock kit and equipment, which is very, very useful for people who work in post-conflict zones, such as Afghanistan, Iraq, certain parts of Africa, certain parts of other parts of the Middle East and Asia. Post-conflict zones are everywhere, right? So if you go onto the shop, take a look, there's going to be bits of kit on there that will be useful to you. When you buy it, when you go to checkout at the checkout, enter the discount code H H O U R H R H H O U R, and you'll get money off that purchase. Group for more information on Ardvark. Go to the shop, get a discount. Thank you to Hardbox, sponsoring the podcast. On to the podcast. My guest today is Penn Farthing. Penn Farthing served 22 years with the Royal Marines. Uh, he served in, the, in Iraq and Afghanistan as part of his service with 40 Commando and 42 Commando. And uh, he, in 2007, started a charity, a charity called Nowzad. Nowzad's aim is to, or perhaps was to, relieve the suffering of animals in Afghanistan, including... Companion animals, companion animals, working equine, stray and abandoned dogs and cats, and all other animals out there. But it was also with the health and well-being of the Afghan people in mind as well, which we got into on the podcast. Penn is now out of Afghanistan with the fall of Kabul and the fall of Afghan to the Taliban. He, well, it's been quite well publicised. Tried to extract from there to leave there with all his staff and with all the animals and was unable to do all of that completely. He managed to get the animals out, but unfortunately he is still trying to get the staff out. This podcast is the ground truth of what happened from start to finish for Penn and all his staff when the Taliban rolled into Kabul. This is the H-Hour podcast. My name is Hugh here, and my guest today is Penn Farley. Enjoy. Pen Farthing, absolute pleasure, mate, to have you—not in a studio, but on Zoom. But so be it. This is modern, modern life, and uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, is. And,
0: and, and you've got far too much going on to be able to make a journey here, anyway. So um, thank you for your time, all the same. I do appreciate it. Testing times you at the moment. Um, what we were talking about, What I'd like to do is again, and slightly partly for my own ignorance, I'm fully aware of Nowzad, fully aware of you. We've been talking intermittently for the last couple of years via Tony Lewis trying to get a podcast sorted. And here we are, right? Um, but partly to my own ignorance as well, can you do me a favor, mate? And for the listeners and video viewers, and can you explain um so what Now was doing, does do, um uh, and where in Afghan and for what reasons. So and this is before obviously the 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 fall of Afghan, the fall of Kabul. Is that all right with you?
1: Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, that's absolutely fine, yeah. Um, and it was what Nauzad does, because we don't do it anymore, sadly. Um, so for the last 15 years, I've run an animal welfare shelter and clinic, small animal clinic, in Kabul, which some people be like, do what? I thought this was like a you know for ex-military guys and military guys, etc. Um, so I used to be a Royal Marine Commando. I did 22 years, um, served out in Helmand. And I came across a fighting dog, Um, you know, this stray street dog that's been used for dog fights by the Afghan police. Um, His ears were all cut off. His tail was missing. He had all these scars down the side of his face. Um, And I saw them fighting him against another dog. And obviously, I wasn't going to let that fly. So I broke up that dog fight. Didn't really think too much about it. And then when I was, because I was a troop sergeant back then, when I was patrolling around our little compound down in the town of Nazad and Helmand, I found this little stray street dog. Um, you know, and he was carrying away. And so kind of I wanted to get him out. I didn't really trust him. I thought he might bite one of my guys. But as I tried to get him out, me and him kind of fell for each other. And over the coming days, yeah, you know, he'd just come and sit with me. I might be sat there cleaning my weapon, you know, writing orders out, doing whatever I did. And he'd just come and sit with me. And I'd end up like just stroking the top of his head. You know, and we both took comfort from each other, I guess, in that. You know, I could pretend for five minutes I wasn't in Helmand. You know, I just sat with this little dog. Um, and so that's how the Nazad charity started. I realized that actually maybe um, after I'd finished in the Corps, that there was, you know, things I could do in Afghanistan to help the Afghan people in the way of animal welfare. Over a thousand Afghans a year die from being bitten by a rabid dog. Um, there aren't any, or there's only a few hospitals that actually carry the rabies vaccine. So, you know, the young child gets bitten that's it. It's literally game over. They've got 24 hours to be vaccinated. And if your hospital doesn't carry the vaccine, there's nothing you can do. So that's how the Nazad Charity started. And as soon as I started this charity, I got calls from other soldiers. I thought I was unique looking after this stray dog when I'd been a helmet. I wasn't. Wasn't at all. Um, and so to date now, the Nazad Charity has actually helped over 1,700 soldiers be reunited with a dog or a cat that they adopted whilst they were out in Afghanistan. Um, And we we kind of expanded Um, our work, took us to all aspects of animal welfare within Kabul and the wider reaches. We employed the first ever female Afghan nationals who are fully qualified veterinarians. So I had these young women, just 22, 25 years old, um, who were there at the front, you know, telling these Afghan men how they should be looking after their donkeys or out in the streets, catching dogs and cats to be vaccinated, neutered, spayed and then put back on the streets um so it was thriving and we we um like I said we're expanding we just finished and when I say it and think about it's now and I I don't want to do the choking up thing on a podcast but we just finished expanding we just built a $40,000 new quarantine and isolation facility and we opened it the day before the Taliban arrived in Kabul unbelievable it's just sat friend. there empty now, just, just so gone. That, yeah.
0: So Nowzar then was was formed partly out of obviously the welfare of the animals, but of, also partly out of welfare of Afghan nationals. And that's correct, right? Listen, to hearing what you're saying. Yeah, we
1: because we couldn't do, you know, obviously rescuing a dog for a soldier, so a Brit soldier, yeah, you know, that helped that dog out and it helped the British soldier out, but it did nothing for the Afghan people. You know, so one of the things we wanted to do was actually, by rescuing these dogs, make a difference for the Afghan people. So that's the charity then employed people. So we have 25 Afghan nationals. Um, Yeah, their average wage is about $300, $400 a month at most. Um, But that's then plowing, obviously, money back into the economy, giving them a job. Um, And so we realised then, obviously, well, if we're helping this one soldier's dog, because we're vaccinating, nuturing it, why don't we then you know, go out on the street and neuter and vaccinate 20 Afghan dogs that aren't going to go anywhere, but we can put them back on the street. They won't have puppies. And we know that they won't be spreading the rabies, vaccine, you know, rabies um, disease. So that's how it works. So, you know, we use the, the soldier rescues as the PR for the charity because, you know, sadly, there's too many charities around the world that has to do that kind of work for rabies. So it's a struggle to get obviously recognised and get funding, but for our charity, we had the yeah you know, the ace and the hole, as they say, and we had obviously the soldier rescues. And so everybody you know loves a picture of a soldier with a cute little puppy they're looking after. So that was how we drew people into the charity to see what we did.
0: There we go. There is. a my in my ignorance, I thought it was the the prime aim, which is don't your good marketing probably was um, we you know getting getting those those uh, dogs to the uk that so you know the, like you said the soldier this this the the happy story thing but that that was part of it but that was just the conduit for the greater good right okay i feel like a right moron now i'm, I'm yeah
1: slightly <laughs> I, mean, <that's>, myself. <laughs> I mean people you know you know unless unless you're into dog welfare and stuff you know why would you know i mean you know this is you know with tony lewis you know obviously the legend that is tony lewis um yeah, that's how we, we connected was obviously because of his son, Conrad. Um, he was looking after a dog you know, out in Helmand province. We got the phone call from Tony. Um, you know, and I thought it was just another one of the you know, rescue calls that I used to get all the time back then. And then he you know, said, oh, my son's looking after this dog. I was like, yeah, well, no problem. Just give me some details. You know, and that's when Tony said, well, actually, my son's been killed in action just a couple of weeks earlier. Um, you know, and obviously the lump in the throat. And I'm like, uh, uh, yeah, what the heck do I say? Apart from yep, yeah, we'll get your dog, um, and as we had to figure out obviously how to, you know, to get little Peg out of where she was in And Thankfully, the Paris was still looking after her, um, and we were able to you know support that rescue and get Peg back to the UK. But you know, Tony soon realised the other work that we were doing, and then through his charity three five three, you know, they've supported now for like the last five years. Um, all the intern programs that we've had at NALZAD. So we've had actually over a hundred veterinary students come through the doors at NALZAD. Um, yeah, and we've called the clinic back then, we called it the Private Conrad Lewis Small Animal Clinic in honor of his son. Um, and we've had over, like I said, a hundred students a um, year come through who actually have been you know trained through funds that 353 have run. Um, yeah, and they're the ones who are now going out into the communities, doing the vaccinations um, yeah, and doing that small animal work. Uh, to help the afghan community so yeah it's always been a bigger picture but it was the soldiers rescue that was the catalyst
0: that started it. yeah I, I know that story well so i, I served with comrade lewis and um i'm with the other gu- guy who was killed with him as well lewis henry and i i met peg out there when I, I was on the same tour with him obviously wasn't called peg
1: the time, I know. Pegasus. We we use the real name. <laughs> we use the, uh, <laughs> the fake name now. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. It's the it's uh I can say the PC name. It's the uh it's the social media friendly name. No. And then um, and so yeah, I like sort of kind of saw firsthand, like you did, that aspect of it where it's not solely trying to get a dog back. It's the parent of a a, a lad has been KIA, trying to get a piece of. Yeah, a piece of the sun back in, in a strange kind of way, their life out there that they didn't know about, kind of thing. Um, and then I met Peg a couple of years back again, reunited myself again at Tony's house. So, yeah, I understand it completely. Where, so, where in Kabul is, is the HQ situated? Is it, you know, in the, in, in the city, heart of the city, is in the outskirts? Build that picture.
1: Oh, so, we, we've got a, a house and a clinic. So, that's where I've lived for the last two years, which is more or less right in the middle of Kabul. Um, uh, You've got the Darleman Road and you've got the King's Palace to the south so we're we're just up from that really. Um, And then uh, we've actually got two other facilities so we've got the actual dog shelter proper that had over 140 dogs in. Clearly we couldn't have that in Kabul because of the noise so that was on the very outskirts Um, and we've also got the first ever well, we did have the first ever donkey sanctuary in Afghanistan. So obviously you've got over a million working donkeys. Um, yeah, and these things are just absolutely abused day in, day out. So part of our mission, and again, we just got that going properly this year, um, was going out on the streets and tackling that head on. So you know, stopping these donkey owners um, with their donkeys with these horrendous loads and these absolutely just desperate injuries um, that they had from carrying all of this. Um, so we were out there stopping and promoting animal welfare, bringing their donkeys in if they need to be hospitalized, um, you know, and changing the owner's attitudes to, to these animals, you know, that are basically their lifeline. Um, so, yeah, we had three, three sites going. Um, and like you know, myself and obviously my wife, my wife worked out in Afghanistan as well. She worked for another NGO, and an NGO called Ascend Athletics. Um, so we, we lived there more or less solidly for the last two years. Um, yeah, when I step out of this quarantine, um, yeah, back into England, that'll be the first time I've actually stood on English soil for two years now. Jesus,
0: can we take a step back a minute? Over the time that you were you from when you started the charity out there to I don't want to don't want to say the end of the charity. So I want some semblance of hope there, but to now, <laughs> did you see um, an impact? That you guys were having, guys and girls were having, on um how Afghans that you uh had influence on the way they they were um treating their animals. Did you see an improvement in animal welfare in any way, shape, or form in general, even marginally? No,
1: yeah, hundred percent. Um, well, like I said, we had a small animal clinic, so yeah, and it was a proper you know front of house. There's your reception. You'd come in. You know, your, your animal will be processed through, then it, one of our vets would be called to see the animal, would obviously you know, um, give any form of treatment or whatever it was that they needed. And, you know, and 75% of our clientele were local Afghans. So, you know, they'd bring their cat in, they'd bring their little dogs in. Um, you know, we had uh, working dogs come in. So like from Kabul airport, the working dogs there, they'd be brought to us by their Afghan handlers. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we saw a massive difference. You know, people forget the uh, religious aspect, you know, thinking, oh, well, people, there, are Muslims, so they don't like dogs or cats. Yeah, you know, that's completely rubbish. It's just like being in Britain. You know, you walk down the street, you meet 10 people, five of them like dogs, five don't like dogs. Um, and that's the same in Afghanistan. You know, people like dogs, they don't like dogs. It's got absolutely nothing to do with religion. Um, so, yeah, once people realised there was this clinic operating um, they actually knew what it was doing and didn't overcharge. All of our like vaccines were free, so when we gave out, you know, every dog was uh, vaccinated for rabies, that was free. Um, you know, we started to get a lot of clients coming in. Um, you know, and it was amazing to see how these people treated you know these animals, you know, just like we would with you know our dog or a cat. And we then started getting people who found injured dogs or cats out on the street they'd either bring the animal to us or they'd ring us up and say you need to get down to you know this street in time innit um yeah because there's a dog lying on the side of the road it's just been hit by a car um yeah and that was just the, the everyday afghan people who were making the call and we used to have um again thinking about it now it's actually really bloody sad uh we used to have our afghan animal hero award so anybody who reported an injured animal to us and we were able to go out and get it we'd then have a little ceremony back at our clinic a couple of days later where we'd give them a this nice little certificate Animal Hero Award um, for you know stopping and being the difference and not just walking by as most people would um, and now I see it towards you, it's kind of all come back, that's all gone <laughs> and now that, that doesn't exist anymore now that's just beyond sad
0: How did uh, what about the attitude towards the way you were employing women, the way they were integrated into the charity? Do you ever face any issues with that or, or, or see an improvement in attitude towards that at a time? What was that like? Because I imagine well, I mean, 10, 10, 15 years ago, it was a, a little bit of a different situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. and But Kabul, you know, the Kabul's a city of over 5 million people. Um, but it's become so progressive in the right direction. And when we first started, there was a little bit of, you know, the girls would sit over one side, the men would be over the other side. But we also had a problem with the men not talking to the men because they are all from different, you know, tribal backgrounds as you like, you know, Hazaras or Tajiks or Pashtuns. Um, so we had, a, we had a little bit of that. And then I used to get so fed up with it. And I was just like, right, all of you now, you're employed by Nauzat. He said, so we're all just one family here now working for one cause. So I said, I don't care if, they're female, your are Pashtuns, you whatever it is. I said, we all get on because we're here when you come in. I said, I don't want any of that stuff from outside brought in. Um, and we worked on that. And then if you had seen like lunch times at the clinic, because under Afghan labor law, you have to provide lunch for the staff. So we had a cook who came in and he did the lunch and she used to cook everything in oil. Oh my God. Um, everything in oil. Um, but she'd cook that and you'd see them all and they were just laughing, talking. It was, you know, boy, girl, boy, no one cared anymore. Everybody sat next to each other. you know, And it was just absolutely fabulous to, to be a part of that and to see it all. And that was where Afghanistan was headed. You know, you go out on the streets in Kabul, um, you know, and there's little coffee shops, um, you know, and um, cafes and stuff like that. And people would be in there, you know, quite often now I'd see couples walking down the road in Kabul holding hands. No yeah. You know, that's, that's just, you know, if you think about it in Afghanistan, you know, everybody automatically thinks of a burqa, you know, that wasn't Kabul. You're not going to see women without a headscarf on, but you know, they were more daring now, as in they were wearing, you know, colored headscarves and maybe they weren't as you know, tight around their heads as they used to be. And it, it definitely, you know, definitely heading in the right direction. Um, and again, I, you know, I'll come back to every time I say something like this now, just to get the point over. But all of that's gone in the space of two weeks. We have literally just destroyed that country, and we've just put it back to the day that we, yeah, you know, we went in there back in two thousand and one, or wherever it was. It's just. If I sit thinking about it. It's just absolutely crazy. It is beyond sad that all of that has gone. You know, our staff never. Obviously, we've had massive debates, haven't we, in the UK about immigration over the last few years. You know, stop immigration and all these people trying to come in and Brexit and everything. But these people, like who work for us at Nowzad, you know, my staff, they didn't want to come to England. Yeah, they wanted to visit maybe for a holiday. They'll you know, a couple of them into their football when they want to go and see Arsenal play or Chelsea play. Um, but they didn't want to leave. They that Afghanistan was their country, um, and now. They've got no choice but to leave. Leave along with you know so many other people. We've just created this massive immigration problem that's been going on for years now. As people are trying to escape this brutal regime in Kabul, it's it's just so sad and desperate. It's unbelievable.
0: At what point did you realise things are going pear shaped out there? Before did you get did you hear talks of evacuation? Did you hear did you what was going down? When did you when did you realize that things may not turn out the way you thought they were going to turn out?
1: Well, obviously we knew from Trump. So back in January 2020, so we knew obviously he'd said the Americans were going to pull out. Um, naively, I guess. Um, yeah, you know, we truly believe when Biden came to power that he was going to be, you know, this this fresh breath of air that would actually look at the Afghan problem. And do something about it. And I know, and a lot of people are going, "Oh, you can't have troops staying on the ground forever." And I know that. I get that. I've, ne- I've never ever said that. But I think he could have gone back. No. Oops, sorry. Uh, somebody tried to call me, so I left that. That's no, right. Blank me out. Um, so we, you know, we thought Biden might just actually though go back to the Taliban and say, "Great, we are going to leave," but. Will leave once you actually go to the negotiation table properly and actually, you know, put some, put some proper, um, you know, positions on that table that can be kept to, i.e., you know, women's rights, um, you know, obviously how they're going to deal with international trade, how they're going to deal with the aid money, obviously letting NGOs carry on their business, you know, that kind of thing. We actually thought he would do that. But instead, he, he just plowed on. And when he started, you know, saying, well, we are going to withdraw on this date, I think that was the, you know, the catalyst for the Afghan army realized that they had no support anymore because obviously, you know, as you know, America stopped um, the air support and then had to hastily start it again when things really started going south. Um, but it was too late by then, you know, the rot had set in, the Afghan army realized that they actually didn't have the backing of you know, America. Um, and seeing obviously their commanders you know, flee you know, why? Why would the ordinary soldiers stay if their commanders just obviously run? Um, so we thought we had. Again, we were listening to all the intelligence reports. We thought we had at least a month in Kabul. Um, so we had actually made preps and plans to evacuate. You know, all our animals were booked on you know cargo flights out of Kabul. Uh, my wife was booked on a flight. And, you know, she had a ticket with Turkish Airlines. You know, they they flew daily into Kabul, so she was on a flight ready to go. But we thought we had.
0: What point was this, Ben? Yeah. Sorry.
1: This was How just was- like um, probably about three weeks ago now. Okay. Yeah, you know, when we thought, okay, you know, was probably going to fall in about a month's time. So what we'll do is we'll get out and we'll get as many of the animals out as possible. And then we can obviously see, you know, what happens. And we again, we're all still hoping that you know, Biden would realise he'd made this massive mistake and he would actually try and correct it. Um, so my wife was booked on a flight. Um, you know, we've got all the animals booked, all their paperwork's ready to go on cargo flights with Turkish to get them out. Um, and then suddenly, you know, we we seen the reports, well, hang on a minute, you know, Kandahar's just fallen, Herat's just fallen, Mazar's just fallen, Oh, Kunduz has just fallen. And we're all like, hang on a minute, this isn't going right. And then we hear that the Taliban are in Logar province, which is right next door to Kabul. Yeah, you know, that's literally half an hour's drive from Kabul. Um, and on that day, that's when we heard that Turkish Airlines suddenly just said, we're not flying anymore. And my wife's flight was the next day. Um, so we knew then that obviously the evacuation hadn't started from the airport, you know, and that we were sat there as the Taliban walked up the street the very next day. How
0: did you, when you were planning for that, you know, that, that uh, staged with, withdrawal from there for, for, for the animals and for you guys? How did you break that, that news of that decision to the staff? What
1: was that? The like? staff, you know, again, they were okay. they said you should go. You're a you're a westerner. If you're here when the Taliban come, then you know, you're gonna be in trouble. And obviously they knew my background. Um, you know, and a lot of them didn't want me to be there for the simple fact that you know, obviously being a former Royal marine and I'd obviously said a lot in the press about you know, my time and you know, it's well known that obviously down in Helmand, we were fighting the Taliban. So, you know, they said you should go and get as many of the dogs and cats out as possible, because what we wanted to have was basically a sanitized clinic so that there would be no, you know, British or American connection. Um, you know, and especially no dogs there. And then we could see what the lay of the land is. You know, maybe the Taliban have changed. And, you know, we'd actually come back then because they were like, yeah, this is a cool. You can run a clinic. But so we didn't want to be there to find out.
0: So potentially the, the clinic could have still operated potentially as an Afghan clinic until such time it was safe for you guys to come back in, if that was a
1: possibility. Exactly, yeah. So just a sanitised clinic with no connection and, to the and West. The staff,
0: you know, and the staff were looking to keep it going.
1: Yeah, and the staff you know, thought this would be, you know, we could, we could maybe you know keep this going, we'll be able to do this. But, um, you yeah, know, the report started coming in of how they were treating people down in the South, um, You know, some of our staff obviously, you know, they come from all over Afghanistan. They're not just you know um, from Kabul. So you know, some of them were coming in that house. Some of them were going around. Sorry, some of the Taliban were going around houses and were asking for lists of all the single women who weren't married. Um, Yeah, this is up in a place called uh, Barakshan. Um, for what reason? Yeah, so that's so they could be married off. Because obviously, you've got all these Taliban fighters who are coming from all over. um, yeah who aren 't married, um, you yeah, know and so for them marrying off to the the single women, so these reports started coming back, and that 's when we realized actually you know this this is definitely not heading in the right direction. Um, you know what can we do for our staff as well now because we're in that position my wife couldn 't get out um, we knew we like I said we were stuck in that very next day, the Taliban walked up the road, um, you yeah, know, and we all sat in the house, we sat in the house with our staff. Um, and you know, everybody was just terrified. And um, we were just sat in the main office area. Obviously, everybody's on like their social media. Um, yeah, we didn't really need to be because we could look out the window and see them all walking past. So,
0: Where are you getting the reports from? The FCO?
1: Um, no, the Foreign Office um, don't give out um, intelligence reports. It comes from another charity. There's, a, there's an organisation called INSO. Um, they're a registered charity in the UK, but they give all their... Um, intelligence reports to all NGOs who operate in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. And they're incredibly good. Those, those that team is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, so you get text messages telling you to look at your email because then there'll be a more detailed report. Um, yeah. And so I was signed up to the reports from all over the country. So literally my phone was going off every two minutes with updates from everywhere. And it was, you know, literally, you know, minute by minute, the Taliban are here, the Taliban are here. Taliban are here and they're facing no resistance they've just taken this district compound this district compound or these 500 Afghan soldiers have just surrendered um and it was on mass surrenders like that you know just 500 guys handing their weapons in to 50 Taliban it was absolutely crazy um there was just no fight in them and that's how they swept the country up in literally I think about four days it was just crazy
0: when they were coming up the street when you when you when you you, you, mean, you mean that close what were they doing what what they were what were they doing through the town the city at that time
1: um thankfully when they took Kabul there was a little skirmish on the outskirts in a place called um Karga Lake which is about five miles out of Kabul some AMP and some uh, Afghan army I think put up a little bit of resistance but they then took Kabul without a single shot being fired um so they started to come in the gates and then the Taliban command told them to withdraw to the city limits. So they came in and then went back out again and waited on the outskirts. Um, during that time, the Afghan police in Kabul literally took their uniforms off and ran. Um, so there was no police on the ground. So that night there was a lot of looting you know, and criminality going on and people started complaining. So the Taliban actually said, right, we're going to bring our guys in to patrol the streets to stop all this because there was a lot of um, NGOs that obviously were in comms with who were saying, you know, our compound's just been broken into and people are, you know, stealing laptops and rifling through, et cetera. Um, And the Taliban actually came in and then restored order, you know, for those nights because there were no police anymore. Um, So they actually kept things quiet, you know, and for the rest of the time I was in Kabul, in our area it was actually quiet because the taliban were now the police
0: so we're talking what three or four days before operation pitting started we're talking about like, the tuesday the wednesday before because I, the... I think
1: i think it was yeah i think it took them three days didn't it to get to get that in play when they when the airport fell and you saw those horrendous scenes um yeah i think it was probably a couple of days it took them to actually get established on the ground to actually start working out some form of system
0: who the, the Taliban are pitting or the other, yeah, pitting to get okay, there. I, I know, I don't know when the US landed, but I think the 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 British contingent two power and that landed on a Sunday, I think. So, we're talking, yeah, must be three or two or three days before that. Then, is that when you're talking about this yeah, situation, I mean, situation where the Taliban came in to police the city because the police weren't there anymore?
1: No, I mean, and they took over all the police compounds. Um, so, like, if we had a problem, you know, we we went to see them about one thing. One of one of our um, horses got t- taken from our donkey sanctuary. So our staff went to the Taliban, who are now in our police district HQ, you know, and the the Taliban sorted that out straight away. Um, they got our horse back and our horses popped back, you know, where it came from. Um, so in some ways, you know, they they were doing what they said on the on the tin, which is just absolutely crazy. Um, but you going back? You said about obviously sixteen air assault, you know, getting dropped into Kabul airport. I mean, you know those guys and girls, you know the the ones who made up that force that came in. I mean, they were they were just put in an absolutely horrendous situation. You know, they're totally put into a position where they're doing obviously an amazing job, but they shouldn't have been put into that. You know that that was the most ill thought out you know, operation ever, you know, combined with the Americans. Um, You know, I'm sure we'll talk about it some more in a minute um, because we had first-hand experience of it. But, you know, those guys and girls were absolutely amazing and I've got a feeling there's a lot of them who've come back who've seen a lot of sites that, you know, they should never have had to go through, you know, whatsoever. Um, And my heart goes out to some of them who had to deal with that, especially when we saw what was happening, you know, around, obviously, the Abbey Gate. Um, Yeah, a lot of good guys and girls there who, who sadly now are
0: probably going to have a few nightmares, I think, for quite some time. Yeah, we, I think we'll come on to it. I was saying to uh, um, some friends the other day when we were talking, you know, I like you, I served out in Helmand. And uh, when I saw some friends who'd done what we, you know, I used to serve without Helmand before, go out and they're on up pitting, And I was thinking, man, I would not want to be on this one operation. I think, well, you would want to be on it if I was still in, because why wouldn't you, you know, go and, and try and help? But at the same time like you said just the most horrendous situation we put in the middle of um when your wife's flight got cancelled what what was the thought then what was the next step
1: well once the flights were cancelled there was no commercial flights in or out of afghanistan so that's when it hit home that we were like okay okay um yeah we need a new plan um yeah, and obviously we didn't know with that withdrawal, you know, hadn't yet been set up. So, um, you yeah, know, the evac at the airport. So we would say, right, we're going to to sit tight. Um, and he, immediately that day, the Taliban come in. Um, yeah, obviously, my wife was in like a just jeans, you know, and a T-shirt and that. And the staff like, right, you need to get changed. You yeah, know, and all our staff had gone from, like I said, their colourful kind of Western clothes that they turned up in each day to work. You know, they were now straight away went out and brought themselves these all dark you know, outfits um, and really thick, heavy headscarves. Um, so we thought, you know, there's two choices. Either we're going to be on this evacuation if it gets going or we're going to have to just wait and sit it out. Um, obviously, wait and sit out wasn't really an option we wanted because we didn't know how the Taliban would react to foreigners. So, yeah, it, it was um, worrying times. You know, we we did sit there. And just saying oh crap what are we going to do you know how, how are we going to get out of this um, and what is going to happen um yeah
0: were you in touch with any other ngos who are in a similar predicament
1: yeah we we've, we've got a whatsapp group of ngos you know all the uh, head you know country heads um and all of them you know we're exactly the same you know like okay you know they'd evacuated some staff but they had other staff still left because like i said we all thought we had at least a month um and so, yeah, they were all like, right, have you heard the news? I've got, you know, Taliban have just come to visit my NGO. Um, you know, they seemed okay. They didn't take anything. They've told us to be aware of criminality and report anything, you know. So everybody was in comms and other people, you know, is the airport open yet? You know, how do we evacuate? What happens? Um, so, yeah, we, that was a really good group of people just, you know, chatting away and sharing all their information they could so we could all have a bigger picture of what was going on in Kabul.
0: So when did the the evacuation uh, opportunity present itself? At what point did you get that info and and and
1: and see it as an option? You mean from the airport, yeah? From from yeah, this, 'cause I'm like, assuming
0: that from the airport, yeah, because I'm assuming well, did you did a land move cross your mind?
1: Again, we thought about that. Um we've got enough contacts. We thought about going through Nangarhar province and then across to Pakistan. Um yeah, you know, that was one of our options that we, were, we had on the table. Um, once, obviously, 16 Air Assault had got themselves established. Obviously, the Abbey Gate was now obviously open for business. But obviously, you saw that in those desperate first days. People, you know, were, couldn't get through because of the mad crush of desperate people who, you know, a lot of them who have flown back to UK weren't on any list. They just happened to be able to get through that door. So I now, you know, speaking to a few people, I mean, you've got people in the UK that you know, they're like, who the heck are you? You know, what did you used to do in Afghanistan? Because they've got no documents, they've got no background. So there's a big pot mess now going on of people who are back here who we don't know who they were because obviously, you know, they came through into that airport, um, you know, in that initial first few days of just total confusion. Um, so at the time, there was no call forward notices. What happens was, once you on, um, you'd you made yourself known to the British government or to the Americans or to whoever, like my wife's Norwegian, so you know, to the Norwegians, they would issue a call forward notice and then they would tell you which gate to go to. So there was actually four gates. You had North gate, East gate, Abbey gate, and then the South gate for the airfield. Um, the Americans ran the North and the East, and there was the Brits who had main responsibility for Abbey gate. And then um, the South gate was the Taliban gate. Um, what do you mean, a Taliban so, gate? Yeah. A Taliban yeah.
0: gate? Uh, so, they were, so the Taliban were controlling access to one part of the airport?
1: Yeah, so the Taliban had the outer, outer perimeter, but they also had the south gate. So they controlled access to the south gate. Who so were they,
0: Who were they letting in?
1: <laughs> well, they had a list. So this is where it all gets rather <laughs> complicated. They had a list of people that apparently the British or the Americans would give them, And if you turned up at the south gate, they would then process you through um, and you'd actually get into the airport. And so for any of your listeners who who know Kabul airport, who've been there, you'll remember where the old MiG fighter used to be in the little roundabout, um, you know, as you went into the airport. Well, just further on from that is like the main frontage of the airfield, of the airport. And you've got a little fountain um, and a big sign saying, you know, Hamid Karzai airport. and in there was a piece of barbed wire, you know, about, I don't know, 20 foot bit of barbed wire from between a little kind of roadway. And on the other side of that was the British. So the British were stood there, you know, all tooled up. And then on this side of the wire was the Taliban all tooled up. And because of all the equipment they'd yeah, taken, um, when I first got there and I looked at that crossing point, I thought it was British stood on this side as well. And then when the guy turned around and I saw his face, I was like, bloody hell, because they had all the gear. They've got Armoured piercing rounds now. We've literally tooled the Taliban up into a proper fighting force with all the equipment. It's just absolutely scary. So this guy was dressed exactly the same as all our guys. But the British can't cross that barbed wire. So everything from that piece of barbed wire all the way to the front of the airport, you've got to go through the Taliban. So unless your name's on a list, you're not getting in. So outside with me, when you jumping ahead to when I was trying to get through the airport, there was British people outside. I had one guy come up to me. He's all right, mate. I was like, you're from London. He went, yeah, I'm a bus driver. (laughs) So I'm on holiday seeing my parents. He said, I can't get home. He said, my kids are all over there. Um, And I went over and talked to them. They all showed me their British passports. And they're still there now. They didn't get out. So you know, he's a bus driver from London, still stuck in car books. he couldn't get through the Abbey Gate. He couldn't get in the South Gate because he wasn't on the list. list. Um, it's just, it, it wasn't the lad's fault at all. You know, the guys and girls, like I said, did an absolutely amazing job in absolutely horrendous circumstances. You know, and ultimately when we had all the crushes and, you know, and people were in that confusion, you know, you had all these 16-year assault guys and girls, you know, picking people out they could to try and, you know, save them from being crushed. Um, they should never have been put in that position. It was just so poorly thought out and rushed. Um, you know, the powers that be need to really take a good look at themselves because they totally screwed that up.
0: How did you get to the airport from when you decided to leave the the, uh, the compound? Because so, from, I'm just trying to recall, that it, was not a simple move, right? It was pretty... No, no,
1: no. So, I mean, my wife first, we had to get her out because I wanted to get her out of the picture and then I could obviously concentrate 100% on what I was doing. Um, so I needed to get her out. So we tried to get her to the airport the first time um, and she was called forward. So she had her piece of paper from the Norwegians and my country manager was, uh, she's American and she was 32 weeks pregnant. Um, and she's got a little son, a little year and a half old boy. So we wanted to get her out. Um, yeah, she again was, was on it. A-
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. And we wanted to get her on a flight now she was due to again fly out commercially but obviously that had all been you know knocked on the head when turkish and emirates had stopped flying um so she she was getting called forward so we tried to get them through the abbey gate and that's when they got crushed up against the gate just too many people trying to get in um they're waving their passports up um you know soldiers um sadly by then, we also had American soldiers on the Abbey Gate as well, um, and because of the crush against the gate, the American soldiers thought it would be a good idea to shoot over the heads of everyone to drive them backwards, so they started shooting up in the air, and that just called a massive stampede going the other way, um, so they got caught in that. Obviously, my wife's trying to you know keep my um, country managers from being crushed on the floor, um, and they. By the time they managed to get out of it, it was getting dark. So they couldn't come back to obviously where we were at Nowzad. So they had to go into a a friend's house, a safe house we've got down near the airport. And that's where they spent the night because they just couldn't get into Abbey Gate because of the volume of people and the crush that was going on. Um, So eventually they came back to Nowzad about, I think it was two days later. I think my wife finally got back up to where I was. and obviously my country manager as well. You know, and then we had to rethink the plan. But thankfully, the Americans were um, thinking ahead, which is good. Um, so we actually got told that there's going to be a NOP to get the country manager and my wife out. Um, and they actually sent a, a car up, and there was an SF team in the car who drove them up to a deserted spot of land away from where we were, and they brought a Black hawk in which picked them up and flew those two to the airport. Um, So that's how they got out. Obviously I couldn't tell people at the time, I've been telling the press that we got them back in a couple of days later through the gate, we didn't. But obviously I couldn't tell people how it was operating at the time because obviously these SF teams are out there, obviously getting vulnerable people off the ground and into the airport.
0: How did they know where they were?
1: We'd um, obviously, we are in comms with them, so we obviously dropped some pins on WhatsApp and they were like, right, we know where you are. Um, okay, we'll come out. We'll be out there at eight o'clock, make sure they're ready to go. You know, and these very uh, bearded people turned up at, yeah, like eight o'clock on the dock, put them in a the car, <sniffs> drove them off. And then, you know, next thing we'd heard was a helicopter go over the top. And then, you know, they were on their way to the airport, which gave me breathing space then, because then I could obviously, the only person I had to, worry about was obviously the staff my dogs and cats and obviously me um i didn't need to worry about my wife anymore
0: so where were the staff at this point I, I take it they were just between home and the and the clinic was the clinic still operating in some way shape or
1: form no well the clinic was still operating we served our dogs and cats we we uh, kept our female staff at home we said look you've got the option stay at home your families will come in one of them wanted to come in because she said she couldn't just sit at home because you know brain was just main meltdown trying, you know, thinking of all this you know, possibilities of what was about to happen so she'd come into work um and, but i lived obviously our house we lived with some of our afghan staff anyway um so you know one of our, our senior vet you know he lived across the hallway from me um, you know at night we'd sit and watch movies and stuff together you know and eat pizza and all that kind of stuff so um yeah they were there and, and obviously just trying to go about looking after the animals, but also preparing the animals ready for a move because, you know, by then we'd started Operation ARC, which was, you know, the mission to get the people and animals out on a privately funded flight. You know, you, obviously the flight's got a cargo hold. Um, you can't pop people in the cargo hold. So obviously we'd put the animals in the cargo hold and then we'd put the people up in the passenger cabin. Um, and we had, with our immediate staff and their families, we had 68 um, staff or families and staff you know, and our flight had seats for 230. So, you know, we were, we said to the British government from a very early stage that once this flight lands, you can fill it up. You know, we've got no dramas with that. Um, and that's when I start getting obviously so annoyed that with the British government and that, because I couldn't say it any clearer than that. You know, this is a privately funded flight. Um, I just need you to basically open a gate to let me in, you know, and that's it. And then we'll help you get extra people out of the country. Um Yeah, and that's when it all started turning nasty and we're getting accused of using military resources. Um, You know, I'm sat here now talking to you and there were no military resources whatsoever used to get me into that airfield. Not one. Not one single resource. Um, And that really does, you know, wind me up when I still see in the press now people saying we use military resources or military aircraft or we use military people to load the plane. Um, I left after the British military, so it was actually US Marines who had just sat around on the flight line waiting for their flight out, who helped us load the aircraft into the cargo hold. Um, it wasn't the British; didn't load the aircraft at all.
0: Why did the government not want to use the spare seats on the plane?
1: Because I obviously, for them, you know, it, we were distraction from the fact that. You know, you still have interpreters and people who work for the government. You know, you still have them sat on the ground of Kabul now because, like I said, it was such a poorly planned op. Um, You know, and I again, I want to go to town on some of these ministers over this. You know, we stopped combat operations, the British, in Afghanistan in 2014. So we've had since 2014 to get these interpreters out and people who work for the government. Why did they try and rush it in just 10 days? You know, they knew Donald Trump was withdrawing from Afghanistan back in January 2020. Yet yeah, they only just put some emphasis on getting interpreters out in the last two weeks. Um, you know, they were, they were never going to get everybody through those gates at the airport. There's just nowhere on this planet. Um, and when I finally got in, so remember, I, I got into the airfield after it was closed. So I didn't get in while the airfield was still taking people through the door. I got in afterwards. And, and um, um, via obviously the south gate, um, I had four different Taliban checkpoints to go through. Um, so it is a case of convincing them, pleading with them. Um, finally, you know, getting an escort from the Taliban, which is a whole new story, um, <laughs> to get to the actual front gate, of the airport, um, where obviously my name was on a list that said you know, that you yeah, know, this guy should be turning up. He's a British national. Um, and finally, I convinced them that my name was on a the list they needed to go and find, which they found. Um, and they were like, we don't care. You've got a British passport. You can just go. We, we don't care about you. We want you out of our country. You're a foreigner. Just get out. Um, but they wouldn't take the staff, even though the staff had all the relevant paperwork from the British government, because finally the British government actually issued this paperwork. If they had given me that paperwork three days earlier, I'd have got my staff out. But they gave me a phone call. That's obviously one of the reasons why I went ballistic on somebody's (laughs) voicemail was because they'd given me a verbal, your staff are cleared, but they wouldn't give me the paperwork. And because they delayed giving me the paperwork, by the time they had given it to me, Biden had changed the rules and he'd closed the airfield. So, you know, he'd closed it for new people to come in because they knew they couldn't airlift everybody out if they let any more people in by the deadline of the 31st. So my staff were turned away at gunpoint. And, you know, that's why they're still there.
0: So Biden had overall command of that airport then in terms of uh, uh, what happened access-wise?
1: Oh, 100%. The yeah, okay. yeah the, the Brits didn't. We were just a very small part of that operation. You know, we had that one gate, um, yeah, and that that was it. We and I think there was a lot of friction, you know, from hearing the voices on the ground, there was a lot of friction between the British and the Americans. It wasn't yeah, you know, I think this special relationship, you know, that we all go on about, yeah, you know, we don't have that anymore. Um, you know, we were given a you know, a very hard time. You speak to the guys and girls there, you know, it wasn't it wasn't smooth operating with the Americans at all.
0: Yeah, I suppose when when is it ever when it's on a, a large scale like that? I think we we do things differently, right, for different reasons. Um. So you, your staff, I at what point did they decide that they wanted to they needed to bug out? As in did, you know because before we were talking and when everything was rosy, they were they you know they had no intention to come in maybe visit in the UK, but obviously with with things about to get very bad in Kabul they made a decision that they wanted to leave. When did that come? I wonder how their um, families, their extended families took that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's all the reports that came from, you know, out in the provinces. Um, you know, so like my you know, female staff, they're all single, uh, you know, so, you know, their parents are like, if you've got the opportunity to go, leave. You know, and I said to them all, look, you know, because yeah, these, remember this, the Taliban were now going door to door and looking for people who work for the government um you know and obviously like I said it wasn't a secret that obviously you know I would used to be a Royal Marine um so they're basically working for me you know and they you know again part of our PR as you mentioned earlier was all about the soldier rescue you know so these people had helped American soldiers British soldiers look after a dog well there's two things the Taliban don't like for a start um so it was you know we were like well hang on a minute you know and our staff also, they all had ISAF passes um, for you know the the main camp in Kabul because we did all the work for the working dogs there. So you've seen a lot, I think, about the biometric data that the Taliban may now have because the Americans left all that there. I mean, just really? You've had a year and a half planned this and you leave all the biometric data? I mean, come on. So you know, my staff all had ISAF passes. So Do you want to explain
0: was... for – sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, so – So the biometric data, said to get onto like ISAF base, you'd have obviously all your eyes scanned, your retina scanned, um, you know, and all of this data was kept and we had to have passes to get on there to deal with the working dogs at the um, uh, US Embassy, ISAF, um, which became Resolute Support, um, the big NATO base in Kabul. Um, We also supported the British Embassy, Canadian Embassy, Japanese Embassy, you know, so our, our team's data was all over the place. So we were like, well, if you get interpreters out, because they work for the British government, well, so these, you know, yes, some of you might think, well, they're only veterinarians, but, you know, they've supported, you know, the working dogs and the Taliban absolutely cannot, you know, they hate working dogs because when I was driving through the checkpoints, I had obviously my two trucks full of dogs and cats. I had so many of them were shoving phones in my faces with pictures of a Taliban detainee at Bay, at Guantanamo Bay. Um, being obviously, you know, with a working dog in his face um, blindfolded, you know, in their orange suits and they've got this working dog being, you know, barking and, you know, growling in their faces. So they absolutely hate them. They wanted to shoot the dogs I had because they said these are all working dogs and I had to get one of the dogs out of the crate and prove to them it was just this skinny little, you know, street dog, you know, that it wasn't a working dog. Um, You know, pretend they were all my pets, you know, and I was taking them home. Um, otherwise, they wanted to shoot the lot. So, you know, our staff were in danger because of that, because they'd helped, obviously, the government with these working dogs. They'd helped soldiers with their dog rescues. So that's why we then decided we needed to get them all out.
0: What was that like approaching that first Taliban checkpoint and 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 having to try and get through as a as a white Westerner, ex <laughs> Marine? How did that feel? Well we, two, going. well, we
1: had two trucks... Um, with dogs and cats and we had two buses with all our staffing. So the buses were following behind the truck. So I was in the lead truck, sat in the middle. So there's me sat here. Um, driving it is my office manager, a guy called uh, Fareed and sat next to me is Mustafa, uh, my senior vet. Um, both great guys, both speak um, perfect English. And we're, we're driving down the road. We'd literally gone, I think like 400 yards from my house and these four Uh, Taliban ran out from the checkpoint they're at. Um, As soon as they ran out, um, they, I watched them do it and this will remain with me forever. Um, They cocked their rifles um, and then they pointed them straight at us in the cab, um, fingers on the trigger and then one of them had an ND. Oh my
0: God.
1: Um, And we all sat there like that and it just went over the top of the cab and all four, all three of us sat in the cab were just like, and I've never heard an Afghan swear in English before, but I did that night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ.
1: And they kept us like that. Um, another truck turned up, another truck turned up. And we, you know, just to keep focus. So we were, I said, the guys count. Let's find out how many we've got here. And um, by the time they'd finished, we had 40 Taliban surrounding all four vehicles um, and they kept us like that at gunpoint for an hour while they um, decided what to do with us. Um, wouldn't let us leave. We were sat like this. Um, so you sat your hands
0: up the entire time?
1: The entire time, yeah, in the trucks. What did they um, want to know? They like, where are you going? Why, why are you going to the airport? And I was like, right, we've all got permission. You know, I said, it's well broadcast that the Taliban have offered safe passage to all those who need to get to the airport. But what what people got to remember, the Taliban isn't like one functioning organisation. The Taliban is so many different groups, you know, of some aren't Taliban. They're just warlords who have thrown their hat in the ring with the Taliban. So this group we had were probably five miles from the airport. So they're just a group of Taliban. They don't know what the main Taliban are doing. They've just been told to hold this checkpoint, you know, out on the outskirts. So. We had to convince them that we had the right paperwork remember they can't read so there's no point in me showing them the paperwork because it's just a bit of paper to them explain um, that
0: a bit explain that for people about the they can't read bit, please yeah
1: i mean conference. so these are literally um yeah you know, just young men really young men from the provinces who the only option they had in life was really to join the taliban because you know, out in the provinces, the economy wasn't fantastic. Yeah, you know, there's not work. Um, you know, and the Taliban offer a better choice moving forward. So, you know, they joined who they thought would be the winning side. Um, so they're given a rifle. You know, that's why we, we had that ND. You know, because there's no weapons handling drills. You know, they've been given a weapon, basic tuition on it, and then that's it. So, you know, all of them had their fingers on the trigger. And it's just, that's the heart-stopping moment because you realise it's not that they want to shoot you, but they just forget. They don't know what they're doing. You know, and all the time you'd hear NDs going off, you know, where people have got a finger on the trigger walking around with a loaded rifle. And it's just so scary. So these guys can't read or write. they have never been to school. Um, so, you know, the paperwork we had to them meant nothing, you know, so they were, they're making phone calls. Um, I actually had one, one kid, I've got I've got his picture on my phone and that. And um, well, I've, I've really obviously let the relevant authorities know about it. But um, while we sat there for that hour, one of them came to the cab door and he opened the door and he rested his AK-47 on my senior vet's lap. <laughs> um, but he's like, can you get me to England? I need to go to England. And I was like, of course I can, yeah. What, what do you need? And he said, well, <laughs> can, can you tell them, you know, that I I should be allowed in. I said, brilliant. I said, as soon as I get in that airport, you guys get me in the airport. I said, I'll go straight to the British tent. I said, tell you what, have you got any ID on you? And he said, yes. So I took photographs of his ID and I said, as soon as I get the airport, I'll let them know that obviously you need to get some clearance so you can come into the airfield too. Um, I said, you just got to get me to that airport. He's like, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. That's what we work on. He said, oh, brilliant. Thank you. Um, It was just crazy. They've got the Taliban with a gun asking me if I can get him into England. So clearly, I've I have given his details to the correct authorities, just not the ones he wanted me to give them to. <laughs> Jesus,
0: yeah. I mean, the 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 percentage of people in Afghanistan who are, are illiterate. Yeah, you're right. It's, you're absolutely right. It's, it's huge, isn't it? And it's what it's one out of well, a lack of education. They don't have like a formal education system in most of Afghanistan, and then to it so there's not really a need for them to read or write when you you know you think about hellman i think back but i remember also that that sort of culture when i was sort of in uh, young in my experience of afghan and, and working along like I say, working with those people or dealing with those people is that you could show them a piece of paper you could be talking yeah blah 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 and hold up a document as a reference point and they would pretend like they understood it would be you know it would be in arabic and they would pretend like they understood what you're talking about because but again part of the culture is uh not wanting to not do something you ask for or understand something isn't it so they won't let on that they can't read those for the inexperienced people you know it's uh yeah so like you said paperwork means nothing which makes it all the more challenging um when they made the decision to let you through that first checkpoint, did that was that just something they did in the fly from on the ground, or did they get? Do you know if they got information from some? You know, the,
1: the yeah, board they board? they were on the phone for ages, and different commanders turned up, asked us different questions. They were on the phone. Uh, they then had a shura, you know, meeting um, where they all sat down in the street and discussed it, and then they came back to us and said, "Right, we will give you an escort to the airfield." So we actually had a Taliban escort moving forward to the airfield, Um, and that was the first time with all the staff, you know, all my dogs and cats, um, and we got to the airfield, they would only take us within 200 meters of that bottom gate because they didn't have authority, they said, to go any further with the Taliban who were at the gate. So they dropped us off and then we had to wait while we went forward to try and negotiate then, bringing our, you know, vehicles through, with the staff on to get through those next gates um and that's you know that became just a waiting game then we actually sat through we got there i think like two in the morning um we didn't get to go forward until nearly i think it was about five o'clock in the evening so we spent the whole day just waiting out in the sun obviously trying to keep the dogs and cats cool um you know feeding obviously the staff and you know um, thankfully, there was a local mosque along there so we could use the toilets of the mosque, you know, because obviously have got women and children. Um, yeah, and it took us a long time to then get permission that we could move forward to go into the actual airfield. Um, and when we did get permission to go forward from the Taliban, we got obviously 300 metres inside, got to the next Taliban checkpoint. And that's when they said, no, you're not bringing your Afghan staff in. Um, you know, that they're not allowed to leave. And I said, why? They've got all the paperwork. And this is again, I'm in the middle of the street having a I'm sat down with this Taliban commander. And he said, well, Joe Biden said now that you can only come in if you've got a valid passport. We're not, he's not allowing anybody to come in without a passport.
0: And this is and the Taliban saying this.
1: This is the Taliban, yeah. So they've been told by the Americans who to let in. So they're basically doing crowd control. Um, and I sat there on my, you know, hands and knees. And I begged this Taliban commander, I was like, look, they've got permission. The British checkpoint is just up there. Let them in. Um, And at gunpoint, they said no. They stuck an AK in my face and said no. And they said, you can go through or you can go out. It's your choice. So I said, well, I'll go out with my staff. I'm not not going through on my own. Um, I'm so glad I made that decision to go back out with them because the second that I said that was when the two suicide bombs went off at the Abbey Gate, which was literally about half a kilometre away from where we were stood. Um, Obviously, the Taliban went into panic. Obviously, we had to get out of the airport. Um, And because of where the Abbey Gate is, so the Abbey Gate is like a closed dead-end road here, and the airport roundabout where we were coming out is here. So all those people who were affected by that bomb blast, who weren't injured, are now running back to this roundabout. So if I'd have sent my staff out on their own, they'd have been caught up in that just then. So thankfully, we all went out together um, so we could keep you know tabs on the vehicles, make sure everybody got through that. We got tear gassed. Um, the Taliban were shooting up in the air with their AKs, trying to disperse people, hitting people with sticks. I mean, it's just horrendous.
0: Because of the panic, time. everyone fleeing the yeah. Abbey Gate everywhere. Er- area, yeah, they, yeah uh,
1: they had no idea if there was any more suicide bombers in there um you know it, it was just absolutely horrendous and obviously trying to drive a truck while he was getting tear gassed um you know he's just absolutely epic um but we managed to get just away from the gate pull over, you know obviously wash our eyes out um, so we could actually see again you know and you've got women and kids in the back who are all throwing up and you know I hadn't even thought about the animals up on the truck because they all got tear gassed as well. that's why sadly we lost. Six of our cats now, um, because obviously you know, as you well know, you know, the tear gas sticks on your clothes. So once the cats, you know, had got through that cloud, they're obviously stinging. They're trying to lick themselves, so they're actually obviously taking the tear gas inside, and that's how sadly they died from um, ulcers caused by that gas. Um, but we got all the staff back eventually to the clinic. It took us about three hours to get back. It's normally like a fifteen-minute drive. It took us three hours to get back. Um, so you could the, you could
0: have been you could have been out at this point right
1: you could yeah, have been could through have and
0: get the plane and you bugged yeah, out they and get said it. to
1: me you can go now if you want but obviously I wasn't I wasn't just going to bash the staff at the gate and I'm you know so glad I didn't Um you know, we got back to the house you know there was tears everybody's you know upset distressed um, obviously sorting the, you know the kids and stuff out making sure everybody's obviously you know washed their faces and that and obviously drunk lots of water um, and then, you yeah, know, we, we made a new plan for obviously the next day, you know, the staff were like, well, that's it. You've got to go. Um, and I'm straight on obviously a call to our crisis team that we'd set up here in UK. Loads of absolutely amazing people who were supporting us, um, you know, with their time, you know, making plans and ringing people and sorting like the, you know, the charted flight out, um, and we say, right, how do we do this? And we, can we do a road move for the staff? You know, What do we do? Do I just go now or do I stay? And we go via Nangaha and we try and go that way. Um, and that's when the decisions were made that it's best for me to go, get the dogs and cats out, and then we've only got to deal with the staff without any animals. Um, so that's why that decision was made and why I went back the next day then to try and get back in the airport again for the second day in a row.
0: And what were you met with that? What were you met with then? But in fact, a question for you. So as the as the situation started changing at the airport, and it was obvious that uh, the coalition forces was beginning to pull out, Biden made that decision. You know, right? Only people with valid passports. Did the did you see the attitude of the Taliban changing? Because it seems. It seems to me from an onlooker's perspective from back here in the UK that they were being, and it sounds like it so far, that they were being very, very, very cooperative, very, very almost progressive in the way they were compared to what they were previously in the way they were going about things. For example, well, having a conversation with you instead of shooting you straight dead, right? For example, um not taking all of those people, all of these staff and their families off the bus for trying even just trying to get out. Um did that situation change? Their attitudes change over the time of that that couple of days, as coalition presence was dwindling down, and uh, their authority, as in a Taliban authorities, became more uh, being able to assert it more.
1: Yeah, I think you know, for you know, whatever we think of the Taliban, you know, the Taliban of twenty years ago isn't the Taliban leadership of now. Um, I don't think you know, you are your listeners, you know, saw that Taliban press conference, you know, that was all educated guys, well-educated guys who sat in that, you know, press conference. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, they'd had the common sense to realise, well, they've won, you know, they they have given, you know, America a bloody nose, Um, you know, and America has run away with their tail between their legs. So they realised all they've got to do is keep this going, you know, supporting this withdrawal effort, in some form for a little while. And then they've got the country. You know, creating resistance would have meant the Americans had to stay longer. So they realised if they just helped, you know, in their in their own little way, they could actually get this job done. And then obviously the country's theirs. Um, you know, and you've just got to see now what, you know, they first know what it is now, like four days later, you know, and the Qataris are already at the airport now trying to reopen it. Um, you know, so the Taliban have, you know, will be recognised in some form or fashion, whether America likes it or not um, you know so I think they were just sensible and actually went, yeah, we'll support their withdrawal, we won't totally help them but we'll support it just to make sure they get out of this country, you know, and that's what they did, um, and when I went back for that, you know, the second day again, you know, I had to convince the outer ring of Taliban that you know, I, I was meant to be able to get to the airport because obviously they don't have you know these direct lines of communication yet. But once I got to the airport, yeah, the inner circle of Taliban were like, yep, yeah, yeah, okay, he's British. Yeah, where you go. And then, yeah, they were like, dogs, cats, don't care. Um, just go.
0: Crazy. They have played a blinder. They have played, I think, a blinder of the Taliban. Have. I'd be completely Absolutely. surprised. I remember um, a few days ago it was the first airstrike by the US, a drone strike. And uh, The Taliban released a statement of some way, shape, or form. I mean, there we go. Taliban released a statement, right? And then, yep, and it, <laughs> I and, Think and, about and it, it yeah. and I know, yeah. And it and it said that they they welcomed the strike by the US on ISIS on the ISIS K target. Like, say that again. The Taliban welcomed the strike on a target Afghanistan ISIS K. They just did they like you said in that press conference very educated people that they, they their pr machine is unbelievable at the moment you know
1: yeah totally you know, yeah they've had a plan aren't they yeah the the guy you know one of them i spoke with an absolute perfect australian accent so he's been obviously through university you know except he's probably got a masters degree in you know pr and you know social media all of that kind of stuff it's just absolutely you know, crazy to think about, but hopefully, you know, you never know. Maybe they have changed. Maybe I'll eat my words in a year's time, yeah, you know, I'll be going back because actually they're not the old Taliban, who knows? But um I didn't want to be around to find out. I'll be quite no. happy to find out whilst I'm safely out of Afghanistan.
0: And it doesn't look like the way at the minute. What's the situation with your staff at the moment in uh in Kabul? Are they all safe or are they what's going down?
1: Yeah, so they're safe um for now. Um uh, we've obviously stopped all operations. We don't have an operation anymore. Um, so we're still working the crisis team we set up here is still working desperately hard beyond the scenes. You know, we've attempted all avenues we've got to get them out. Um, so we're still going for that because obviously, you know, we had this amazing response, you know, and everybody supported us, you know, all the general public, um, people from around the world. It's just been absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal, um, you know, the love and compassion people have shown towards the staff is just, well, I I still can't, you know, it hasn't all sunk in really. Um, So we've raised funds to, you know, help them with this transit. Um, And then when they actually do get out of Afghanistan, you know, resettling in the UK, um, I never knew it um, until we started all this, but apparently there's a shortage of veteran, you know, qualified veterinarians in the UK. Um, So these guys, you know, we've had job offers for them, retraining, Um, you know all sorts so you know they're not going to be a burden on the taxpayer when they comes back when they come back because we've you know got funds in place now to help them settle support them um, you know make sure they actually become you know part of again the solution in the UK to actually you know this shortage we've got of veterinarians you know and for all those people who've got dogs and cats you know they're they're quite happy to have veterinarians when they need it so you know that's our plan still we're still working on that and obviously I can't give any details out because yeah you know, we don't want in case things do to turn nasty you know anybody else to know how we're going to do it
0: what's the what's been what's the comms been like since since you now now you're out of that situation with um key people within the government uk Yeah, you know, obviously there's a lot of friction going on are you get any is there any way <laughs> has there been a change of attitudes or any assistance or anything like that going down
1: i'll give you two guesses mate what do you reckon?
0: <laughs> no.
1: No and no. I've heard nothing from anybody about anything. Um, obviously, you know, I saw that. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about my voicemail um, being released. I mean, and I, I tell you now, hand on heart, um, and I've said it, I don't actually remember making it. Um, you know, it was, it was total stressed out, um, you know, emotional couple of days, well, a long few days. And obviously when we knew that we weren't going to get in the airport before the paper had been issued, you know, we thought that was it. So I'm guessing it must have been that night and one of my trustees said that when I spoke to them, um they knew I wasn't headed in the right direction. But obviously I don't remember making that call. because I was at the airport waiting for our commercial flight out, um I didn't have any data on my phone. So it wasn't so I arrived, you know, back at um, he threw over the dogs and cats and you know, spoke to people and they were like, yeah, that voicemail you left is getting a bit of traction in the press. And I was like, what were you on about? Um, yeah, and then I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> um, yeah. And then, so that was all a big shock to me. So I'm still surprised now. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. But, you know, I thought they'd have better things to be doing than releasing that. Because like I said, there are still hundreds of interpreters People who work for the government, you know, actual British citizens, um, British schoolchildren who are stuck in Kabul. Um, You know, regardless of what anybody says about me getting my truck through, well, that wouldn't have got you wouldn't have got all those people out. So I think the government's probably got you should have better priorities than worrying about me. To be brutally honest.
0: Yeah, I think the problem is, Penn, they didn't they didn't count how how uh, how much attention you'd get. I think that's the thing. And so uh <laughs> very, very um what's the word? You know, stressful times for everyone, very, very difficult time for the government. And uh yeah, I think they would have preferred a good news story to be front and centre as opposed well, yeah. to a next Marine isn't commando it? going berserk.
1: Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? If if, you know, we had a commercial flight, so no no cost to the military, no military assets, you know, my staff had got their permission to get, you know, to get onto that airfield. If they'd have given all that to us as and when we needed it, you know, we went through the South Gate. People, you know, Brits could only really go through the Abbey Gate. So if they'd have let me just get the people, you know, give us the paperwork so we could have got through when we actually wanted to like two days before, you know, we did our first attempt. We'd have been out there and it would have been a good news story. You know, we'd have been gone on our flight. We'd have taken a whole load more people with us. It would have been a good news story for the UK government. Instead, they're the ones who've made this into what it is. I wouldn't have had all that popularity because we'd have been out and gone, you know? and I, I don't understand. them release my voice, man. All they've done is now make it worse because I'm not going to just sit around and you know listen to all. That. I mean, people have I've had people accuse me of putting donkeys on a flight instead of people. I'm like, I didn't rescue any donkeys from Afghanistan. Where are you where are you getting this rubbish from? And I've seen a couple of people on Twitter, you know, fairly respected journalists who are pushing this rubbish out. So you know now. You know, I've, I've got no choice but to obviously defend my name and defend what we tried to do. Um, you know, the MOD didn't help. When I got to the airfield, um, I was given a, a chaperone who told me uh, from the British military saying, you're not allowed to tweet, don't do anything. I said, I'm not going. I said, I'm in the airfield now. So I'm just going to wait for my flight. We'll look after the dogs and cats. He said, don't you tweet a thing. He said, because you're not out yet. So, you know, we can't afford anything to go wrong. I said, I'm not going to tweet a thing. Half hour late, I got a phone call from my wife and she's like, have you seen what the MOD have tweeted? (laughs) And I was like, no. And the MOD tweeted that they were helping me load my aircraft and it'd be taken off soon. (laughs) We didn't even have an aircraft and we're still sat in a hangar. I was like, so I went back up to my chaperone and I was like, you know, you told me not to tweet. You went, oh my God, you haven't, have you? I said, I haven't, but you have. And then he was like, oh no, why did they do that? So the MOD tweeted I'd left Afghanistan. I think it was twelve hours before I actually left Afghanistan. So, um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it was weird. It was just they're the ones who create this mess, you know.
0: I can I can understand it from the guy in the ground point of view, as in as in don't do anything because it's that's basic. You know, security thing. Just keep it's an op going on. Uh, a what's uh, uh, a high um, what's the word high profile? You know, task going on. I you you are getting out, and so it's it's a security thing, albeit maybe a bit over the top. But then again, the MOD the MOD's own PR machine doing their doing their thing. And then
1: they did it, and we were panicking then because obviously our flight still had not got clearance to land. So. You yeah, know, and they, obviously the yeah, the British military guys then with me knew that. So we were like, well, hang on. Now they've said we've left, but they haven't actually cleared us to come in yet in, in real terms. So that, they put pressure on themselves. <laughs> we, we just sat there and actually we just sat there giggling because we were just like, you couldn't make this up. Yeah, they who, they who, who put you, the pressure on themselves.
0: Is it just you at the moment, like with the chaperone?
1: Yeah. So you the animals, yeah I had a yeah. couple of... Um, some of the para lads came in. Uh, we had a giggle as well about the fact there was like um, the, they were like, "Oh, paras have come to the rescue of a marine," and I was like, "Fellas, don't go there. Just don't go there." Um, <laughs> but I mean, and but those lads, I mean, they came in. They were shattered, absolutely shattered. You know, the the look on their faces, and everything. Yeah, and they'd been at the Abbey Gate, you know, constantly. Um, yeah, and it looked you know like they'd just been in non-stop battle. Um, you know, I mean they're a good bunch of lads. Um, yeah, you know, they asked if they could help us with the dogs and cats, and they helped us with some of them we needed. But you know, basically they got their heads down. I didn't want to wake them up, you know, to um to help me out because obviously they they looked like they needed the the downtime. And then I got my head down for about an hour, and I woke up, and I've got a photo of it. But there's one of the, uh, the power lads is actually walking one of the dogs around this little hangar we're in. Um, he's taking him out of his crate and he's walking him around. Um, you know, so you know, guys and girls on the ground were absolutely amazing. You know, but the powers that be, nah, they totally and utterly, without doubt, messed this up.
0: In hindsight, how do you think it should have been handled?
1: Now, immediately, they said they're going to do this withdrawal and they're going to set up this airhead. They needed to push out from the perimeter um, and not push out as in Taliban-held areas, but like the the Abbey Gate should have been a processing centre like four miles away from the airport. So Afghans went there to be processed and then you had marked buses that were then driven down with a Taliban escort that could have gone straight into that south gate you know, and so it's a bus service, basically. And then each day you change the location of the processing centre, you know, on the outskirts of Kabul. Without a doubt, and we said this straight on. That's what you've got to do because you're trying to get, you know, the, the Abbey Gate is, is like that, a door. You're trying to get thousands of people through a s- small door. It was never going to happen. And, you know, obviously all these bomb threats. Well, of course there was going to be, you know, mass casualties if you allowed people to congregate as they did in such a small, enclosed space. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just terrifying to to think of what happened there at that gate with those two suicide bombers. Um, yeah, the Americans, sadly, you know, they lost thirteen U.S. Marines and twenty five. Twenty five Marines are like life changing injuries. Um, I spoke to some of the medics. Um, when I was just sat in the airfield waiting So, you know they they were kind of around. so I spoke to a few people um, yeah, the, the, they're, some of those medics who had to deal with that uh, yeah they' they're gonna need help and support when they get home. that's for sure um, because yeah it was just absolutely horrific. I think hundred thirty people lost their lives that in that blast, those two blasts. Um, you know thankfully, I was talking to the the powers, you know, they just pushed out away from that area. You know, Looking literally cool. just pushed out to make the perimeter a bit bigger. Otherwise, they would have been in that, you know. So they pushed out and the Americans were left actually at the gate. And that's why, you know, sadly, it was only American casualties and not British soldier casualties. Um, you know, it's, it's just devastating. It's just, it didn't need to happen. Absolutely did not need to happen. You know, we, we could have planned that so much better for the evacuation. And I'll, you know, I'll stand there and I hope in the future there's going to be some inquiries as to why this all happened because people need to answer for this. You know, not only did they destroy a country, but yeah, you know, we've left people behind. And right now I don't see any plans to get those people out.
0: I think British people.
1: Yeah. I mean, you heard that once that suicide bombing happened, that um Certain minister said, "Well, now people should get to the borders, you know." Sweet pea, mm-hmm.
0: we nearly done, mate. I know you. I know it's. Uh, I'm sorry, it's I'm, I'm
1: just getting. It's I'm just getting the wets in. So I know I sort uh, <laughs> <it to you. laughs> I saw the same. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, no, uh, they said get to the borders. You know, now the airport's closed, so you need to get to the borders. Well, as of today, and we're what again? five days later, the um, borders with Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan Uzbekistan, they're all closed. So the British government told people to get to the borders and people can't cross. So these are genuine people with their bit of paper that told them they were going to be evacuated. They're now stuck at the border crossings. I mean, how long does it take to get this sorted out? It should have been a priority. They should have been planning this. So we've known for all this time that you know, this day was coming and it hasn't happened. So, you know, I can rant forever on this. It's, I, I just do not believe that we have not got it in place yet to help these people get out of Afghanistan because all we've done is put all the people that the Taliban wanted, we've now put them in one place at the border. This is, this is just crazy. And it, people need to know, and we need to, you know, get rid of the people in charge who've made these absolutely horrendous decisions which is totally affecting people's lives and actually get people in place who actually know how to run a country and know how to run these kind of things.
0: Well, we never seem to learn, Pan. And when I say we, I mean... Yeah, you're right. We never seem to learn from, especially from military, I was going to say mistakes, not just mistakes, military military events. We never seem to learn. It's absolutely madness. And especially in a day and age now where it's not like it's a thousand years ago. We're trying to pass on Lessons from history throughout is on, yeah. you know, on flipping scriptures. It's not we, you know, we've got all the information we need from previous previous evacuation situations, previous you know overthrows of countries, and oh, we we know it all. We should learn these lessons, and we should have learned these lessons, and put things in place. And and why not? I mean, why don't we flip a neck politics, money, yeah, egos, attitudes it's
1: just totally absolutely totally yeah you've got your you know the the guys and girls on the ground you know i said like all throughout you know this last 20 years so you know you know all the you know the army navy air force marines you know all of us you know who served in afghanistan you know everybody did their job to the best of their ability and did a bloody good job you know and we lost so many people you know in that endeavor um you know like the guys and girls now 16 air old. Did the job they had to do to the best of their abilities in absolutely horrendous circumstances. You know, it's not the military people who have you know caused any of these problems. They were part of the solution. You know, they brought security to Afghanistan. Yet it's politicians, you know, those people in in power who who have no idea, like you said, haven't learned from what we've just you know been through. And again, they've you know they've destroyed a country. They've The last 20 years now, what was it for? You know, all those sacrifices we had from the military, you know, I always used to defend, you know, what we did and, you know, sadly the loss of life because I said, well, you know, part of that mission, we brought security. You know, the young girls who worked at Nowzad were just five and six years old when we first went into Afghanistan. And the security that British troops fought for and sacrificed for allowed them to go to school, to become educated and be part of the solution of Afghanistan. It was heading in the right direction. All we've done today now, and like you just said, the we, the the powers that be, we've just given Afghanistan back to now a fully armed Taliban. So we went from you know flip flop wearing AK forty seven carrying Taliban to now body armored, a uh, body piercing. You know they've even got helicopters. There was a Black Hawk flying over Kandahar yesterday. For crying out loud, you know so what was that last 20 years for what what did what did we achieve now because we've just given it back to them
0: well question hmm, a lot of people are asking right and, and this is the way i'm looking at it is that because again I'm, I'm like you mate i've got you know i'm emotionally invested mm. in Afghanistan you know, for, for all the same reasons as many of us are, as an ex-military are, or still people are still serving are, you know. And the way I look at it is, well, I, you can't really answer that question yet. I don't think it all depends on the next year, two years of what, even six months of, and we actually see what 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 the Taliban doing. We actually see what it turns out like, because part of me thinks that in terms of rationalizing that 20 years, right? Part of me thinks that, okay. It's a real bit pill this is a real bit of pill to swallow at the moment for a lot of us yeah. with the Taliban in control. However, what if they are not the same beast as they were well, they're not the same beast as they were twenty years ago, or even a year ago, even six months ago, right? And what if the way Afghanistan is in a year's time is better than what it was twenty years ago, right? With all this happening between. Then there is an argument to be made. Well, that improvement, if it's not marginal, that improvement, if an improvement is to be seen, would not could not have come about if it wasn't for the twenty years. But that improvement has to be huge. It can't just be a marginal thing. It's Some little sort of Taliban policy changes. You know, they're a little less oppressive to women. They're a little less, uh, you know, um, relying on the flipping narcotics trade. They're a little less uh, strict with a Sharia law, for example. But again, it remains to be seen, you know, it's something that can't be answered yet, I think. And the other complication to it is that different people like you, it's going to be a different situation needed for you to sort of re- reconcile it in your mind and be accepting no yeah. or not accepting or not to so what it is for me and everybody else. And again, going back to you talking about the guys and girls who are on that op pitting man, you know, some of those people who, who were there, a lot, who were on the op, they did the helm as the Herricks, you know, and they've they've seen the the whole thing to to go from seeing their mates killed to being then being there and seeing the, the country just being handed over, and there and then and you alluded to it. And then being, and this is what people don't understand. I think when, we, when you talk about how difficult it is, the situation you're in to be put into that situation, and you could say, "Oh, well, it's not the same as being shot at or whatever." No, it's worse, because you are every single hour of every single day. There are people like you and me, and young lads and young ladies from different units are out there, and they're having to look at thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, and thousands of people who are screaming, pleading, crying, dying at that airport on the outskirts because they want to get out because of what's happening in Afghanistan. And those men and women who are there in the uniform know that all those people are not getting out, only a fraction. And they have to leave knowing that people there are not going to be alive in a month's time or even a week's time because they'll just be assassinated. And they have to live with that. You
1: know. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it putting them in that position where they had to make a choice of which person they pulled out of the crowd you know, and which person stayed, that's that's not something that should have been put on them at all. Um, you know, like I said, this lies squarely on the, the politicians and I, and I get what you say, you know, maybe in a year's time the Taliban will be different and maybe it will be, you know, a better Afghanistan in the fact of what it could have been from 20 years ago. Um, but it already was a better Afghanistan heading in the right direction. Um, you know, and, and like I said, just, you know, just like the, some of the politics that's going on, you know, like right now, you know, we are talking about all these people stuck in, you know, at the border. Um, you know, they've got people now in refugee camps, you know, in all the places that were set up. So you've got some in Abu Dhabi, you know, et cetera, being processed um if some of the politics this is some of the the americans as well um you got people there and they say well we you know because my wife's still working with some of her girls to get them out you know and to get those onto other friendly countries um they've been told today they they can't be anything processed today because it's a sunday you're like hang on a minute um it, for those refugees it's not a sunday they're stuck in you know hell in a camp with only what they escaped afghanistan you know, on their backs that's it um yeah you know, we shouldn't be having days off we should be non-stop trying to sort this mess out um it's it's just crazy no one was prepared for this and no one seems to be prepared to get the solutions so, and it's just it's crazy you know this is an emergency you don't stop work just because it's a sunday in the middle of an emergency um it just it drives me mad. Absolutely
0: drives me mad. Well, uh, we're going to start wrapping it up, mate. Um, my my HR patrons patron sent through some specific questions for you. Um, when well, I let yep. them know last night, and I put the OPSEC on them as well. Don't tell. I don't want anyone knowing. <laughs> you were coming up. Um. Uh, but I think someone has been answered. But I'll ask him. What I'll do is we'll go through these. Okay, it's not yeah, there's not loads of them. Go for it. And then after that, we can cover anything that we haven't covered that you may want to cover. Okay, so uh, this is from Derry Knox. Uh, ask him how he feels about the way not only his situation was handled, but also other Brits that needed assistance and weren't given it. And also, what are your plans now? I think we've all answered that partly, but you can you can go for it if you want.
1: Yeah, no, I think is that, you know, for me, personally, I, I made the stand that I was staying until my staff were out. So, um, however... I never got a call forward until literally the day before I actually tried to get to the airfield. So, um, you know, I knew what I would get into that airfield, whatever it took, if I really needed to. Um, You know, I I had plans in the back of my mind how I was going to do that. Um, But, you know, there are, like I said, there are Brits who are still there. That British bus driver, he never got a call forward. He couldn't get into the airfield. He's there with his you know, wife and kids now, stuck, you know, as behind enemy lines, is such to say. Um, you know, and he's got no no out unless he now tries to go cross country. He doesn't have any Afghan ID, he only has a British passport. So we've just got to hope that Britain does maintain relations with the Taliban. Otherwise, you know, literally he is you know a, a walking hostage, isn't he? So, you know, for these people, you know, that's absolutely terrifying. So no, I'd say I'm not happy with how you know, Britain treated the, the British subjects that they still have there.
0: Oh, and what's your plans now as the second part has got the question.
1: So for me, obviously we're still going, we're non-stop trying to get our staff out, you know, obviously back now with my wife, but we haven't had a you know, celebration or a party or anything. Um, you know, it, it, she's full on trying to get her girls out of Afghanistan or get them from refugee camps into friendly countries. And obviously, we're full on with our plans to get the staff out. So the the time we have a proper party will be once I know they're on an airplane and they're heading to the UK, then I will finally be you know jumping up and down. And I think there'll probably be a, a few bottles cracked.
0: Yeah, understandable. Um, from Dave Davis, is there a fourth book in the pipeline? And if so, what's it going to be called? <laughs>
1: um, we, we actually were for the charity, obviously, going forward before this Taliban, uh, we were thinking about a fourth book just to bring everybody up to speed, but we really didn't know what the subject was going to be. Um, I think we have the subject now, that's for sure. Um, so, if anything, it'll probably be called Operation Arc.
0: Okay. Another one from Dave. Uh, with the Nose Eye Charity, is it going to be able? To, is it going to be able to continue with a revised aim, or in some other way, some other form, or not?
1: Yeah, that's that's. A- very good question and that's something we've been talking about you know and but not in any serious terms at the moment because i said the focus is on the staff but um yeah we we don't operate in afghanistan anymore for now so we're going to have to come up with a new direction um so we've got a few ideas obviously yeah we we've got the support i mean the support we've had has always been amazing but now it's even more amazing um so we've got funding coming in that's why we're still asking for donations um to help with the evacuation of the staff, to help with the resettlement of the staff in England, and then to help obviously now's add in whatever new direction it goes in. Um so we're gonna we've given ourselves, we said, to like the end of September, you know, to bat some ideas around and then hopefully we can announce, you know, a kind of direction that we want to be going in. But obviously we have to go through the charity commission to change our mission objectives. You know, we can't just set up in a new country. So we've got to go through them first to get clearance to do whatever we think we're going
0: to do. Yeah, you never know. Fingers crossed. Hopefully an opportunity might still present itself in Afghanistan, which would be ideal, right? Obviously. But the, like you were saying just now, the focus is on the staff right now.
1: Get the staff mm-hmm. out and then we can look at that, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so last one. So it's, it's a similar question from Alan Rankin and Scott Forbes. Um, what uh, what's the situation... Uh, With the animals' futures in the UK, have you managed to find homes for them all yet?
1: Um, So a lot of the dogs and cats I brought back, we actually got 94 dogs out and uh, 79 cats. But sadly, we've now lost, I said, six of the cats due to the tear gas. Um, So a lot of those actually had homes already because some of them were expats who worked in Afghanistan who got evacuated and obviously couldn't take their animals with them. So they came to Nowzad. Um, you know, and they said, Look, if you get a chance, please get my dog or cat out. Um, some of them were part of our rehoming scheme anyway. They already had scheduled flights out of Afghanistan, but obviously they all got cancelled, so they were already going to homes. Uh, I've got one American soldier rescuing there, a dog called Flower. Um, we've got to get Flower to the US now, but that's a whole new story because at the moment there's a center for disease control ban on dogs from afghanistan entering the us anyway so we've got to work around that um, i've got my own uh, dogs my my wife and my dogs they were on that shipment um and the rest then we've got probably about i think it's like 30 percent of them we need to find homes for um so we're at the moment we're asking people just to hold off messages about adoptions let the dust settle let the animals settle into the uk finish their um, death row quarantine sieges, etc. And then we'll look at obviously the getting them rehomed. Um, so that's how that's working with all of them.
0: Okay. Is there anything that we've not covered that you want to cover, Ben?
1: Um, no, I just really truly want to thank everybody who supported us. Um, like I said, the love and compassion that's been shown has just been mind blowing. Um, I never ever expected this. Um, you know. And, and so I really do want to thank everybody from the bottom of my heart because they're the ones who made the difference. They funded our you know our flight into Afghanistan to get the people and the dogs and cats out. Sadly, obviously, due to you know circumstances that couldn't be controlled, we couldn't get the people on that flight. Um, but you know, and they're there now supporting me. And I don't listen to all the rubbish that's put in the press. I only listen to all the fabulous positive messages I've received. I actually had three days into this which kind of clogged up the system a little bit but i've had over thirty-five thousand emails um so we're still trying to work through all that so if anybody's listening to this you did email me i will respond to you it just might not be today tomorrow or next week because you know we've got a team now working just on answering my emails um you know just so we can actually find stuff that we need to answer to immediately and stuff that we can wait a little bit but yeah the I just want to thank everybody. You know, they they made this happen. I just happen to be the one there, but it's everybody else, you know, in the background and behind the scenes who made this possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Shout out. I know um well, yeah, you mentioned Tony, Tony Liz as well. I know um uh Mike Wellant as well, Rug for Heroes. Um they were I think they made donations actually. Hey yep. you yeah, know, I'll make a I'll make a donation as well, mate. And on, on that note, so how can listeners and viewers help you at the moment?
1: Um is there any right way? now, right now, please. Yeah, I mean, we're still taking donations. Like I said, the the money is towards getting our staff out of Afghanistan, helping with their resettlement when they do come out of Afghanistan. We don't want you know the now staff to be a burden on the taxpayer. So you know, if people you know, can afford to donate, then we're asking them to donate and then we won't be, you know, we're not going to be a burden. Um, we've had job offers, offers of training, et cetera. So we want to be there to help them, you know, with the other bits, you know, so looking after them with housing, making sure there's people on call that can help them with any problems so they don't clog up, you know, the, the immigration system here in the UK. But then also helping us, you know, fund basically then a new direction for now, So we've got the funds in place if we do decide to start somewhere else. Well, not if we do, we will, but where are we going to do that? You know, and we've got the funds already to be able to go straight into action. Um, you know, sadly, there are animals all over the world that need support and help. Um, you know, and we've got a, a great team who actually you know, have been able to do that in Afghanistan. So if we can take what we've learned from Afghanistan, you know, we should be able to do that anywhere, really, to be fair. Hmm. Okay. Well,
0: well done to you, your wife, you know, the staff as well, mate. And, um, And good luck for the future. And if anything I can do to assist, just, well, you got my number now. (laughs) Don't send me (laughs) 35,000 emails though.
1: Um, No, yeah, once I get through that. But yeah, no, I appreciate you having us on today. Thank you. Um, You know, it's it's nice as well, just to be able to, you know, say a few things out loud, you know, and, and let people know, you know, what is actually happening out there and what did happen out there
0: yeah right. and this is why this is why you know I, I wanted to do this and i'm glad you said yes because you're dealing with a lot of misinformation you know you 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 were at the brunt of a lot of misinformation a lot of misunderstanding partly because of people's ignorance of what what gone on partly because of uh the way events have been portrayed and and mistruths have been given for whatever reason and so uh this serves i think as this is it this is this is this is the this is the gen as they say you know the ground truth and so uh, i hope it helps mate what's the website charity website
1: so our website is www.nauzad
0: perfect i'll see you when you get to the uk and i'll buy
1: you a beer all right i'll hold you to that mate thank you very much (laughs) cheers mate all right cheers buddy take care
0: That is it. Thank you for listening to the HR podcast. Remember, you can become a patron of HR and get access to a load of different stuff, load of freebies, and also access to all the podcasts for anyone else by going to uh, patreon.com forward slash HK podcast and signing up there. For the price of basically a coffee a month, you get access to a whole host of stuff and you get to uh, interact, network with previous guests of the podcast on private Q&A sessions each month on, on Zoom calls, and you also get access to interact with other patrons. They're a flipping awesome community of H-Hour fans, supporters, and friends, and I'm very grateful to have uh, have them all on board and you can become part of that niche little group, patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Thank you. Sponsoring the podcast today, again, were the Development Society a community of like-minded people who want to improve. If you like fit, if you care about others, if you want to improve yourself on a daily basis and you want to chuck in a healthy amount of stoicism, then you've got the Development Society, DevSoc for short. Go go to devsoc.shop, D-E-V-S-O-C, D-E-V-S-O-C.shop. Sign up to the Daily Ways newsletter and you'll get a daily dose of really useful information about how you can be, become a better person, but how you can interact with other DevSock members, DevSock.shop, scroll to the bottom, chuck your name in the box, chuck your email address in the box, actually. Also sponsoring the podcast today with the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group operate in humanitarian, critical defense, security, and commercial sectors in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and they are widely regarded as the most effective landmine clearance system in the world. They also offer risk management, satellite and UAV imagery for situational awareness, safe systems for identification and destruction of landmines and the remnants of war, and standoff explosive detection technologies. They've also got a shop where you can go and buy kit and equipment if you work in a post-conflict zone. That is very, very useful. Go to Group and enter the discount code H-H-O-U-R at checkout for money off your purchase. Thank you to Aardvark. Finally, sponsoring from the podcast today were Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities through organising fundraising events orientated around rugby, beer, gin, amazing food. They've got a a scope of events that they do now, from beer and gin festivals to rugby festivals to supper clubs. I highly recommend you get involved with Rugby for Heroes. They were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed in operations serving in Afghanistan with the Parachute Regiment in 2008, and they have raised over £114,000 for charity. Please follow Rugby for Heroes at rugby, number four, heroes on social media, rugby for heroes, and go to their website, rugbyforheroes.org, to find out when the next events are on and see what they're up to. Easy. Thank you to all my sponsors. Thank you to you. Thank you to my patrons. And until the next time,